everybody to Slip Angle wow. Show. I'm Austin Cabot, and tonight I am in Orange County, California, with racer, journalist, and product manager of competition and specialty tires at Toyo Tires USA, Cameron Parsons. How's it going, Cameron? Going all right. How are you? Doing great, man. That was uh, a lot to say, yep. but um, you know, you are a very, very interesting guy. <laughs> I only recently got actually put in touch with you. I think at one of our Speed Ventures events recently. Yep. Um, but I'd known you beforehand just from you know seeing your name come up in different racing results, and then more recently at a magazine as well. So um, it's a pleasure to to be here and talk to you. I think we have a lot in common from mm-hmm. you know. Just the media side of things and driving. Obviously, you've done a lot more than I have <laughs> on the professional side, but you know, as a former uh, former tire company employee as well. Mm-hmm. So um, we're living somewhat parallel lives. My line is just a lot lower than yours is. So uh, welcome to the show. Oh man, that's that's quite an intro. Please don't uh, you know rate yourself below me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, we actually we met a couple weeks ago, um, but before that, I had seen your name pop up. Mainly at D Sport Magazine, yeah. you know, at the at the time that like the Indie Miata came out, I mm-hmm. know that you you know you had one of those and were writing a lot of the articles and kind of were unique in the automotive journalism space and the fact that you could actually drive somewhat well or really well and that kind of came through in some of the articles, um, which was one thing that I found really refreshing mm-hmm. because I'd read a lot of reviews and things like that and you could just tell that the people might not necessarily be able to drive as well or have the driving background. So I trusted what you said and a lot of your D-Sport articles more so than other journalists. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, a big part of me uh, joining that team, too. I, I was uh, their technical editor officially for a couple of years, and uh, it was cool going in. It was this strange awakening for me, though, because my, my whole background was in road racing, and all of my interests in the past for muscle cars, open-wheel cars, exotics, just general sports cars, but I, I had, a, had and still have a love for road racing. I like you know accelerating, braking, and turning. And when I joined, you know, I was a little bit surprised, like, oh, shoot, these guys are all into drag racing. It's all about power here. And my race car at the time was this little 180 horsepower open wheel Formula Mazda. And so it was just, you know, they they trash talk the rotary engine so much, you know, (laughs) hey, Cameron, where's your torque at and everything. But, uh, you know, it was really cool because with that experience, I was able to come in and uh, try and, you know, shine a new light on you know, the track day guys and road racing setups and everything. So it was, it was really cool. They have, you know, their own machine shop where they build engines and they uh, have a a dyno jet chassis dyno where they, you know, test all kinds of parts. They'll do tuning and everything. And so we had lots of really cool projects that were all about power. But then uh, I see like off in the corner, Hey, we've got a shock dyno here. Like that thing's collecting dust. We got to bust this thing out and learn how to use this. And so one of uh, one of our other guys started playing around with it, got it running, and so was it Rorig or what? Yeah, it was a Rorig. Okay, yep, yep. nice. Yeah. So one of our guys did a suspension store. I was like, sweet, we're we're heading the right direction, or at least in my interest. And so we started doing more and more things like sway bar testing, coilover testing, tire testing, and uh, the fun part for me especially was with my racing experience. They actually trusted me to conduct some of the real-world tests, and typically we uh, did everything out of Buttonwell Raceway, some of them with uh, Speed Ventures, and we would jump out there, track test the car, make some changes, collect data, and just you know repeat the process to find out what parts worked best and benefited the benefited the user how. So it was you know it was a blast. I spent a little time on the computer and writing stuff, 
and a lot of time playing around in the shops and out at the racetrack. So yeah. it's, you know, it's hard to ask for <laughs> a better gig than that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was I was surprised when I worked at uh, at Garrett. We actually went down uh, myself and Tim Colty, um, who was the marketing manager at Garrett. We came down and got a tour from from Tony, mm-hmm. um, and you know, got to see everything. And and my jaw just like dropped. I was like, wow, I was not expecting this at all because yeah. it, like you said, it really is. It's a fully functioning machine shop, you know that. I don't know if everything there is just for magazines. I think that they do a little bit of outside stuff for other people, too. Yep, but, yep. you know, it's just a very, very impressive facility. There's like three separate buildings almost. You know, there's yeah. like the offices and then you walk across the way and it's like the shop and then the machine shop, too. It's really cool. Yeah, that's the part that blows a lot of people away when they come and visit it. Because, yeah, you go in through the front doors. OK, you got an office here. We'll take you through another area. OK, this is media. This is where... You know, lots of the magazine layouts are done. We had a 3D printer in there that, you know, we've prototyped, prototyped different models and stuff with, which is cool. You cross into the next room, and then there's a photo studio, photo and video studio. Cross into the next room, there's a shop with a couple lifts where we would handle some projects. Walk across the way, you got a dyno, you got a full machine shop. I mean, they were just doing a live stream today doing a valve job on a, I think it was a 2JZ or an RB26. Um, but they're they're just constantly on playing around with all kinds of different projects and that was that was a cool part i'm not there full-time anymore but that was a cool part of spending you know day to day out in that office because you know i could uh, think to myself i'm tired of tired of writing i'm gonna go shoot photos for a while yeah Uh, i'm gonna go check out what's happening at the dyno i'm gonna see what they're doing in the machine shop and it was it was just awesome to have all that stuff self-contained too because when it came to uh parts testing you're not you're not getting some fluffed up version from, say, the manufacturer that you know wants to maybe tilt things in their favor. Everything was tested consistently on the same equipment, same dyno, same driver, same track if we're out at the track testing it. And so, you know, we, we really valued ourselves as a uh, unbiased resource, basically. Yeah, I mean, what what impressed me the most is that, you know, that publication, for the most part, it's. It's completely independent. It's not affiliated with one of the large groups like the Enthusiast yep. Network or yep. Bonnier or any of those. Yeah. So to see that, you know, level of, I guess, commitment from their side to be able to do everything, you know, correctly and properly and have the facilities for it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's nice because you've got the freedom to say what you want. When when I started there, I was a little shocked at some of the things that you can get away with in there, too, <laughs> because, you know, I... Um, I, I read a lot of blogs. I read uh, Reddit a lot. Mm-hmm. The Cars subreddit is fantastic. And I've seen so many negative comments about lots of other publications or blogs or influencers. <laughs> and uh, you know, a lot of these people complain about this person. Oh, they're just a uh, you know an English major that couldn't find a job and yeah. decided to get into journalism. Yeah. And now they're just you know writing those first class trips to foreign exotic countries in exchange for you know a fluff story and positive positive comments yeah. on this and that whereas with dsport is like hey we're gonna say what we actually feel we're gonna do what we want if this thing sucks we're gonna say it sucks <laughs> if if somebody donates a part you know and it doesn't perform like it should we might call them up and be like hey is there some way that you know, this worked better for you than it did for us because this just isn't working. And there have been times where it's like, uh, we might have to plug, pull the plug on this story because it's it's not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So I know, you know, 
when you were talking about your experience coming in, you mm -hmm. said you were racing Formula Mazda before. Yes. Um, let's go back a little bit and talk about your, you know, your driving career and history. Like, where did mm -hmm. you get into everything? Yeah, it all started uh, with go-karts, actually, when I was 11 years old. Okay. So it was uh, over in the Central Valley area, Central Valley, California, and I started up with the Kerman Kart Club. And uh, I think my, my parents still partially regret it. My dad always complains, like, Cameron, we could have just gotten you a pair of cleats and a soccer ball. <laughs> and you could have just, you know, gone down that path. You could have been a normal boy. <laughs> yes. You could have saved me so much money. But, uh, no, I ended up racing, you know, in that club for years. And it was such a good experience. But, as you know, you step foot into a car on a track or a go-kart on a track, and it's just never going to stop. You're yeah. going to be stuck with it for life. And so... I, I graduated up. I started in junior one, uh, and then I went into the junior sportsman class, junior super sportsman, then 80cc shifters until I got up to 125 ICCs, which are a freaking blast. Like there, there's still no machine I've driven that gives you, you know, the excitement and thrill that a, a 125 shifter yeah. cart does. Was all that Scusa back then, or was Scusa was. not around then? Okay. Uh, yeah, it was uh, Super Karts USA, mm -hmm. and uh, the series out here was Pro Kart Challenge. Okay. So we raced uh, primarily Southern California tracks like Auto Club Speedway, or everybody just called it Cal Speed back then, Adams, um, Willow Springs, Bunton Willow, so just all over the place in, in Southern California. And that was that was an insane series. It was so much fun. But we, we were pulling like 40, 50 carts on grid back wow. when I was doing it. Yeah. Wow. I was racing the S2 class, which was pretty much the 125cc class for the people that can't afford big rigs to tow 10 spare carts with them. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was cool. It was, you know, such good racing experience that like I can't trade out for anything else. Spec Miata would probably be the closest thing because in, in my racing background, the experience that you pull from racing wheel to wheel going side by side with people and trying to plot your passes ahead of time you can't get that if you don't have any competition right and racing with scusa and a class that loaded up you're you're forced to do you know that kind of analysis while while you're on track you know where are my strong points where are my weak points where can i get ahead of this guy on the next lap and yeah so that was a huge huge grooming process for me that that helped me move up into uh, the formula mazdas just a couple of years later okay yeah what year did you start racing formula mazda uh that would have been that would have been 2000 2009 i think it was okay yeah so that was a uh, 2008 or 2009 so it was fourth place my first points championship and then second on my second and then first on my third year i think it was nice. so took a took two points championships with the formula car challenge series out here on the west coast okay so it was it was fun it was a handful jumping from go-karts to a formula car though yeah um that one that's just tough to describe you're moving from this 385 pound thing like with fuel and you in it that will do everything you ask it to because all you do is you twist the wheel an inch and it's like you're doing a 90 degree instant turn <laughs> and formula cars are precise but it still feels like a boat compared to a go-kart uh the formula mazda weighed 1350 pounds um and 180 horsepower but it was on a five-speed h-pattern gearbox it's it, it felt like i had to relearn forcing you know an h-pattern dog box after getting spoiled with a sequential in nope. the uh, in the icc what are the motors in those formula monsters are they just 13 b's yep. like built 13 b's 13 b rotary they're actually pretty tame too we're rev limited at 6950 rpm oh, really? in those yeah wow that's like 
half of what they could probably yeah. do. Well, see, that was, that was a big driving factor for me moving from go-karts to formula cars mm-hmm. because trying to keep up with the big spenders and ICC, like it did wonders in, in grooming myself as a racer and building all that experience I was just talking about, but the expenses were just stacking up. They, they burn through tires. Uh, we were traveling to all the tracks we'd be traveling to anyways, if I was driving formula Mazda and those engine rebuilds, the, the ICC engines, the, we had to redo the top end every race. And then we had to redo the bottom end two or three times a season just to try and keep up with everybody. And every time you're doing the bottom end, you're a couple grand in. Yeah. And we're just like a new cart package costs ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars. And yeah. then we look Nobody over. Nobody wants to run last year's chassis. Yeah, you know? yeah. They I they're so flimsy now, just yeah. trying to pull as much grip as you can that it's like, you know, driving a wet noodle at the end of the season. So we're like, we can't keep this up. We start shopping around at other alternatives, stuff that's you know, nothing is within our budget, but something that can get kind of close to it. And we look at a Formula Mazda. Okay, you can get this car for 18000 to $20,000, turnkey, mm-hmm. race-ready, SCCA legal, sealed motor and everything. And you can run these tires for up to 12, 13, 14 heat cycles. Admittedly, they're competitive for the first half of that. But for a learner's car, it's fantastic. And the engine being rev-limited so low... You can go forever on that engine before you need to rebuild it. Yeah, like that's not stressing that thing at all. Yeah. Uh, typically, it's about three, four, five seasons before wow. you need to rebuild really? it. Yeah. And and mine in particular, uh, we, so I, um, it was 2014, I think it was, and I was shooting for the championship that year. That was the, the second championship year I was aiming for. And we lost the Apex Seals at Laguna on the, I think it was the second to last race of the season. <laughs> So I, I was muscling that thing through, just destroying that engine because I was running for a podium finish still. And I was like, I got to I got to finish, finish this thing. Yeah. And it sounded awful. And, you know, I'm telling my dad, like, this does not sound good. And he's telling me over the radio, it's like, you're doing fine. Just keep your momentum up. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> and so, yeah, we burned that thing up, finished on the podium still. All right. This thing has to go back uh, to uh, to Drummond to rebuild it and seal it and everything. So we send it back to him. He calls us up. And he says, hey, do you know when this last when this engine was last rebuilt? I say, no, we've had the car for a couple of years, but never sent it in. He says, well, judging by the uh, by the seal that's on it, it was rebuilt somewhere between 1984 and 1988. Are you serious? <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> and so, OK, so this engine is pretty much uh, it was last rebuilt somewhere around when I was born or before that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's gone through, you know, three or four other drivers since then. It's yeah. insane. And that turned into a championship winning season for me. So like now, whenever t- anybody's asking me, you know, what's an affordable way to go racing or have fun? I tell them Formula Mazda is like the best. Yeah, I didn't realize buck. that those cars were that inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. Super durable. Um, I've, Are I've, there a couple of generations of the actual of the chassis yeah. that they went through? Or? So this this car, uh, somebody will correct me later, I'm sure, but this car, I believe, was built in 83 to 2003. Okay. And then that's when they introduced the Pro Mazda, the carbon fiber chassis. So the one I had was a tube frame. Mm-hmm. So Pro Mazda came in with carbon fiber uh, chassis in 2004, and then they just updated to a new car again. Uh, last year, I think it was, or is when they introduced it. So it's a couple generations behind now, but there's still nothing more durable. I mean, the standard Formula Mazda is what they refer to the tube frame, older one. It's about six, seven seconds a lap slower than the Pro Mazda, which 
you know, can quickly double in price to buy a car. Yeah. And then maybe more than that in, in maintenance costs. Just for reference, like what do those things do? Like say a button willow on 13 clockwise. Uh, 13 clockwise at Buntwell. I think the lap record's a high 146, if I wow. remember right. Yeah. That's a low lap time for <laughs> yes. that cost of vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It gets a little scary when you show up on a track day and you're coming through some corners and like, oh, there's this 3,000 pound stock car a little ways ahead yeah, of me. Yeah, no big deal. No problem. And yeah. then like half a second later, oh, I'm on his tail. I got to yeah. find a way around this guy. Well, there's, uh, there's people from other parts of the country and probably other parts of the world that are like, are going, wait. You're driving an open wheel car on track with a with a production car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's something that happens occasionally <laughs> out here with multiple different organizations. Yes, so. I, I should say that I don't think I can personally recommend anybody to do that, but I do that. <laughs> if somebody wants to do it, there are organizations that allow them. There are a few caveats that come along with it. Yeah, um, basically keep your head on straight. Don't do anything stupid and expect that nobody can see you at all. Exactly. <laughs> you're you're in the faster car, so it's always your job to make a safe pass and that's that's just always how it is yeah yeah so it's a little scary when you drive by somebody you're doing a buck 20 or a buck 30 and you look over and you're like "Uh, i'm kind of below like the opening on his window he might still not be seeing me (laughs) yeah i didn't know those cars were that inexpensive so now i want to like recreate the mazda ad that i remember from like the 90s where it was like the b2600 oh yeah the b3000 truck yeah you know the ford ranger (laughs) but the mazda version that was towing you know a formula mazda yeah i kind of want to recreate that now what's crazy to see is some of the projects that some of these people do with these things too like I it, it kind of breaks my heart when I see somebody take a Formula Mazda and turn it into somebody into something else. Mm-hmm. But we've seen some cool projects, like somebody um, I think up north actually turbocharged theirs. Oh, really? And redid the gearbox and all that stuff, and they moved from the FM class to I think it was FS or FA, the okay. faster Formula classes with with SCCA, and that thing is just blazing fast, like. When they're pulling up alongside the Pro Mazdas or the actual retired Formula Atlantics at an SCCA race, like you see that go by and like no Formula Mazda should be that fast. <laughs> and then he comes out of the corner and pins the throttle and you're like, all right, that's definitely not your regular Formula Mazda. That thing yeah. sounds wicked. <laughs> yeah, you know, Formula cars is something that we haven't really talked about on the podcast a whole lot, just because for the most part, you think of Formula cars, you think of, you know, kind of expensive to run and expensive to race compared mm-hmm. to, you know, production cars. Yeah. But with a class like with Formula Mazda, mm-hmm. you know, the original Formula Mazda, it sounds like, you know, it's actually it's less expensive than somebody fully prepping a Civic or an S2000 or running like Spec E46 or something like that. Yeah, it's it's honestly a thing that just seems crazy to me. The more time that I've spent in this industry and in motorsports, the more it blows my mind where some people spend their money. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, a Formula Mazda season, I mean, you got to buy the car. These days, the cars are even going down to like sixteen dollars to $18,000 wow. for a complete turnkey package. You might even get some spare parts with it and everything too. If you want to run a full on, you know, seven or eight weekend race season with this thing and you want new tires at every race and you want to do everything right i mean you might be spending between ten fifteen thousand or on the upper end maybe twenty thousand running the thing yourself but i know people that spend way more 
to go way slower than these things do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at what a, you know, a top tier like spec Miata costs to build. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to run at the front of the pack, you're talking new tires for pretty much every single, you know, yeah. every session qualifying and, you know, for the race. And, yeah. you know, it, it starts to definitely add up for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, whenever people are, are jumping uh, from go-karts or from something else trying to get into road racing, like I said, Formula Mazda is always the go-to answer for me. If they're a little intimidated by the open wheel costs or the speed or something, Spec Miata is the other one. But, like, you're just not going to do any better than either of those two classes in terms yeah. of affordability or competition. I feel like I've seen what looked like a Formula Mazda, but with, like, an Acura or, like, a, a Honda B-Series motor in it. Um, one of the shops that I used to go to in mm -hmm. Texas, I feel like they had one. Or it could have been a Formula Mazda with, like, Acura logos on the side of it. <laughs> I don't know. But, like, I just remember that. It was, like, when I f was first getting into everything. Yeah. And, you know, I seem to remember that thing having a B-Series in it. Oh, wow. I, I can't say I'm familiar with it, but I can't also say that I'm surprised. I mean, when you have a car that's that versatile, and when you look at it, when you pull the, the engine cover off, if you pull the engine out, it's just, you know, it's a tube frame chassis. Yeah. You look at it, it's like, oh, there's you a bit of spacing here. I could, of stuff I could that... throw whatever I want into that yeah. thing. And that's that's one cool thing about people picking up some of these older tube frame chassis cars. They um, they can be whatever project you want to turn yeah. it into. So if you're still somebody that likes to tinker with your car and wants to tweak it to do this or that, like, there could still be some options there. You I wonder have... if you could buy one with, like, with a blown motor for, like, you know, 10 grand and do a B series or like a K series swap in it. Oh yeah. Easy. <laughs> that thing would be, that thing would be pretty ridiculous. Yeah. I see. It's I already see. ridiculous as it is. Yeah. But then you like, you give it double the horsepower. Yep. I see people build them up. They'll, some people turn them into full body cars. They'll want to turn, you know, throw faster uh, or wider tires on them and everything. So some people turn them into hill climb cars too, really? actually. Yep. Hill climb cars. That has to be terrifying. Absolutely. Just trying to th I'm trying to think about like, just something like that going up like Pikes Peak or yeah. even like Mount Washington or something. Pikes Peak is a bucket list item for me. But uh, if somebody offered, well, I shouldn't say if somebody offered for me to do it in a Formula Mazda, I wouldn't do it because <laughs> I would do it. But I, I wouldn't feel as good about doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things that you're like, uh, maybe like, yeah. it'd be awesome. <laughs> but maybe you go do it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so what were some of the, the more interesting things that you got to do when you were at D-Sport? Obviously, coming from the Formula Car background, mm -hmm. it's not like D-Sport was covering a lot of, you know, Formula Cars and purpose-built race cars um, that weren't based on a production chassis. Yeah. So, you know, was that kind of like your first foray into any sort of performance stuff with a production car chassis? It actually was. Uh, a couple of cool opportunities I got to uh, take advantage of with uh, at D-Sport was because D-Sport's so focused on uh, especially the Japanese aftermarket. And what better home to find that kind of racing than uh, the Pirelli World Challenge Series? Mm -hmm. And so with, with Mazda just being right down the street in Irvine, uh, we had a cool contact there, uh, Dean Case. I don't know if you've met him. But yeah, yeah he, the motorsports yep, guy. Yep, yep. The uh, Mazda Raceway Laguna Seca guy. Yep. <laughs> he, he worked really tight with us. And, uh, you know, inviting us to cool press trips and stuff with Mazda. I got the opportunity to test drive the NA and NB, NB spec Miata cars and the NC cup car and the ND cup car all back to back to back to back at Willow Springs on one trip, which was just awesome. So after, you know, we built up some time working with him on some of these cool projects, we got to partner up with him and with the Pearly World Challenge Series to throw me into a Mazda 2 B-Spec race car 
uh, for for a season finale in 2014, 2015, somewhere okay. around there. Was that the one that Tom O'Gorman won? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. That's where, yeah. like, when he crowdsourced his whole way yeah. there. He's actually, Tom's been on the show a, a decent amount of times. Oh, awesome. He comes to a lot of our good life That guy can drive. Like, I, I tried tailing him in yeah. that B-spec, and it was my first time, and I was still learning the car, but when I saw him blasting through those corners, I was like, it would take me a while to get up to pace with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, that was such a cool experience. Um, it was, it was overwhelming because I came out of SCCA club racing where everything's super laid back and I jump into world challenge and the, the touring car group is this really cool hybrid blend of keeping things feeling pretty grassroots and with the B-Spec class, especially keeping things relatively affordable. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they brought that level of professionalism too, where it's like, okay, if somebody's going to pass me under a yellow flag or something, they're actually going to get dinged for it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was a big learning experience, but I was steadily going faster and faster. I think I broke top 10 times in that class on the first, first race day. I was like, I'm doing all right. And then on the final race day, I was going even faster and I was trailing this group of guys through, uh, through the corkscrew coming downhill, coming out of turn nine. I see this little bit of dirt that gets kicked up onto the apex of turn nine, I see it way too late. I drive right over it. The front end gets away from me. So it's like understeer, understeer yeah. city. <laughs> start understeering. I start putting in some some input, and me having my you know first ever pro level front wheel drive race. I don't think through things. The car starts to oversteer. Then the back end catches. Like oh shoot, okay. And what do I do now? And I start counter steering and I forget the rule that with a front wheel drive car, when Smash you start over gas, rotating, man. you get on the <laughs> throttle. I just get off the pedals completely and I just start going, you know, seesawing the wheel. The car t starts doing a tank slapper. I go off at 60 miles an hour straight into the tire wall. <laughs> oh no. It was, it was a painful moment. I mean, those cars are not very fast. Yeah. They're a ton of fun, but I had so much time from losing control of the car, nosing into that tire wall, just thinking, oh, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. Yeah, like everybody, everybody that's had an accident will tell you like everything kind of slows down a little bit. Yeah. You know, uh, but then when you're in a slow car, like it makes it even slower. <laughs> it takes even longer. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just thinking in my head, like, all right, I'm still going pretty fast. So this is going to hurt for one. At least I'm aimed toward the tire wall. I was only about five or six feet away from hitting concrete, so thank goodness. You Did know. you go off on the pretty much like up by Spectator Hill, like over on the you yeah. know on the left side of the track? Yeah, like afterwards, okay. I could have gotten out and said hi to the people watching against the fence. <laughs> and uh, yeah, once once I hit the wall, uh, like I I bounce off of it, I skip around, do a one eighty. I'm just thinking in my head, like oh, Mazda's gonna be pissed. World Challenge is gonna be like, why did we invite a journalist here? <laughs> D Sport guys are gonna be laughing at me. Like, I was so embarrassed. And so I radio my dad. He was spotting for me at that mm -hmm. race. And I was like, ah, I'm okay, but this sucks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but thankfully, you know, no big deal. All was forgiven and everything. Now that car is uh, down in Mazda's uh, showroom basement alongside oh, really? their other race cars. For the longest time, it wasn't repaired, which I was kind of embarrassed for. I went on a couple tours through there afterwards. I was like, are you guys ever going to fix the car? Cause they probably, they probably knew you were coming and they yeah. were like, oh, we'll reel, we'll wheel it out. We'll wheel it out. Right. It was, <laughs> it was still out there in the open. The front bumper was crushed in the hood was damaged and it still had my, my name on the windshield. I'm like guys either take my name off of it or, or fix the car, please. It was probably <laughs> hidden. No, it was probably hidden most of the time. And yeah. then when they knew you were coming in, they would roll it out. Yep. Yep. 
Well, and what, so what shocked me, just still talking about uh, you know driving opportunities with D-Sport, what shocked me was two years later, we got to work out doing the same thing over again, except this time with the MX-5 Cup car. So, <laughs> like, do you guys recall that time I crashed your car? Because you're about to throw me into a faster <laughs> one now. I but mean, they're that, like, yeah, but this one's rear wheel drive, so <laughs> yeah, you're you'll back, be fine. You're back home, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll admit that, that that Mazda 2 was the first and still only car, knock on wood, that I've ever planted into a wall. Everything else I've driven, the only reason for a DNF would be a mechanical failure. And uh, thankfully, I did not crash the MX-5 Cup. Got close. Uh, this was once again at the uh, Pirelli World Challenge season finale at Laguna Seca again. Mazda Raceway back then, WeatherTech now. But uh, this was in the TCA class. And so what uh, what ended up happening was we received the car in the MX-5 Cup trim. Mm-hmm. So it's running on the 17-inch wheels on the, on the BFGs. And, yep. yeah. and so since we're racing in Pirelli World Challenge, of course, they have to run on Pirellis. And we had to run a smaller wheel. It's so a 15, isn't it? A 15, I think it's a 15. 15 yeah. by 8. Yeah. Uh, which is fat for these cars. But I'll, I'll tell you, it was a ton of fun. The, those tires are super sticky and uh, around Laguna. Yeah, and they get they, one they of the, love it. <laughs> they get one of the softer compounds too, don't they? They yep. don't have to run the harder compound. I've, I've heard rumor that it's actually the Formula 4 compound. Oh, really? Which is strange. If, if I recall right, that might even be a, a Formula car tire size. Okay. Which is cool because it's a great qualifying tire. Not cool because it in turn would be designed for a car that's half the weight of this thing. So your fastest lap might turn up you know, lap three or four, and then it's just going to be a steady drop off after that. Um, but yeah, so running on the smaller wheel size, I should have read the updates that the long road racing provides. Um, you know, they'll tell you every now and then, you know, the, this part might be, you know, backing a bolt out or whatever, add in a lock washer, you know, those, those preventative maintenance kind of things. Well, it turns out that if you convert the car from a 17 inch wheel to a 15 inch wheel, you should really pay mind to, where the brake lines are positioned. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so we shrunk that down, uh, and I was driving, let's see, I did the practice session, no problem. Jumped into the qualifying session. Everything was going fine. And then I come down, uh, turn 9, turn 10, full blast, go into turn 11. I squeeze onto the brake pedal, and nothing. Nothing, nothing there. It just goes straight to the floor. I'm like, oh, crap, how fast am I going? Like, I'm, I just came off, you know, you know, the short straight, but I'm still in uh, fourth gear or so, and I'm mm-hmm. getting ready to, you know, heel toe downshift in the third and like then the second for the super the tight yeah. turn. Yeah. yeah. But I had nothing. And so the car just barreled through into the gravel trap, and I'm just like pumping the brakes, like trying to get something out of it. I start carving the front tires, carving the front wheels, just trying to get them, you know, perpendicular to the gravel, <laughs> trying to shovel my way to a stop, you know, feet away from the wall. Everything's cool and calmed down. All right. I didn't die. The car's not damaged. What's up? I squeeze the brake pedal, and I just feel it just kind of mushy go down to the floor, and then all the smoke just fumes out of From the, the front right. Fluid. Yeah. Yep. So ah. that smaller rim diameter just carved through through the brake line. It was painful. That was a close call, but thankfully threw it back together, finished the race, not as fast as uh, I would like to, but uh, it was it was a really, really cool experience. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, those those guys bring out the big guns out there, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do. But uh, but the thing I loved about it is still in that touring group. It still kind of had that that grassroots vibe that I was talking about. You go from B-Spec to TCA or especially TCR. There's 
a lot more money being spent and some higher profile drivers and everything. But it was still awesome being able to just walk up and down the pits like the uh, the Murillos from Murillo mm-hmm. Racing. They were a yeah, huge Kenny, resource yeah. for, for yeah. us. Yeah, They helped us so much with just driving techniques and setup. And it was cool because you walk around the paddock in there and you're just another dude trying to do the same thing that they're doing. And so everybody's cool sharing information. They'll, they'll what, hang out with you. What year was that that you got to do that? Was that 2017? That was last year? Uh, this would have been... I think this would have been 16. Okay. 16. Okay. Because yeah. I know right before the event last year is when mm-hmm. they lost their house to the fire. Oh, nope. The you're Marillos. right. That, yeah. would have, that would have been 17. My yeah. mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So. They were just coming off of that, which is ugh, brutal. Yeah. So, yeah. They um, they actually, I think they had some decent luck that weekend, though, at the track, at least. I know not, you know, not with the house. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know that Kenny, he, I think, was only running a partial season mm-hmm. that year. But uh, he won almost every race that he uh, signed up for pretty much. And then, you know, what few that he did, he did great at Utah. I remember we watched him out there. That was when I was starting to get a feel for what the competition was going to be like when I raced the car. And yeah, he was just, I can't say running circles around those guys, but he was, he was, Hugely competitive, and if I recall right, took a win there, took a win at. Uh, yeah, I was Laguna actually I was at that race last year too. Yeah, so <laughs> nice. I had ridden my motorcycle out there. Oh, okay. and was hanging out with my buddy Tom O'Gorman. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you didn't see me nearly crash then? No. Okay, good. No, I didn't. <laughs> so I was at Utah. Not yeah. I wasn't up at Laguna. Gotcha. All right. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it definitely, it sounds like you've had some some really unique opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other unique opportunities is kind of something you're doing right now. You know, with your current job at Toyo as the product manager. I mean, yeah. you know, that's kind of a, a little bit of a jump away from the journalism world. <laughs> a little bit. But obviously something that, you know, your background was actually very, very in tune with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got I've got the weirdest resume I know of because I actually went to school studying IT. I was I was all about computers. I, I grew up being into into gaming. As we're using coasters that are circuit boards. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you can see my my collection of video game consoles here. I finally landed the NES and SNES Classic. Nice. <laughs> and so yeah, computers were were my life and my world, and I'm still into that stuff. But I uh, I got a bachelor's degree in information systems, and then I got a master's degree in IT, and was like, that's what I'm gonna do. And then I ended up finding uh, Allenberg Racing Schools uh, out of Fontana. Mm-hmm. I was like, huh. That sounds pretty cool. I'm going to work with them instead. And so I started coaching with them and I uh, did some of their website development. And then I ended up, yeah, at D-Sport during doing journalism for them. And then uh, I had a short run at a company in uh, Fullerton called Supreme Power, where I was helping them do some of their uh, marketing, where they deal with lots of exotic sports cars like Ferrari, BMW, Porsche and all that stuff. And then now I find myself here at Toyo Tires doing product management for their motorsports tires. So... All this bouncing around, I still can't explain how I got here, but somehow I did. <laughs> but, so what's what's your main role as product manager? You're obviously managing the product portfolio and kind of looking at, at the market and what's out there mm-hmm. and how you guys can be the most competitive. Yeah. Um, are you guys, are you doing only like pavement sports or are you doing off-road as well? We do a lot of both. Okay. Uh, a thing that I was surprised at going into Toyo, I've I've only been there for about six or seven months. I came in, my experience with Toyo was primarily with R1R, R888R, RRs. I knew them for their track tires. And then I came in and I was like, what? We have we have a TBR division? Like <laughs> we do tr- like semi-truck tires? I had no idea. And then uh, in, in my job interview, I remember they asked me about my experience with off-road. I'm like, 
a little bit. Like I, I did some rally stuff and they're like, no, like truck racing. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> like desert racing yeah. and like stadium trucks yeah. and like, which by the way, side note, any of the desert racing stuff makes even like, even at the amateur level mm -hmm. makes pro racing in the like, you know, in the semi-pro ranks and pro ranks look cheap. Yeah. It look really cheap. My mind. Desert racing is so expensive. I can't believe it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get to work on, on both ends for that, which is just awesome. I get to work with the road racing products, the track day enthusiast products, and then our off-road racer products, which involves, uh, like, some of our sponsor drivers, BJ Baldwin and Andy McMillan, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, in the desert racing side, and then some of our other guys, like, Brandon Arthur, Jared Brooks, Kyle LaDuke, and the uh, Lucas Oil Off-Road Racing Series. And it's, you know, it's just been a blast so far. So far, I've been, you know, full throttle, especially with the uh, Lucas Oil stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, working a lot with our, our desert racing guys because, you know, our guys there are, are super competitive. And in order to stay ahead of the competition, you got big money guys like BFG going into this stuff. And they're just like constantly releasing updates mm -hmm. and, you know, killing everybody else. So like, oh, you think this tire is fast? Wait until next yeah, month. They've, got, like a, they've got a tire for one. every like dirt compound <laughs> yeah. that there is, you know? Yeah. But it's been cool. I mean, we just came off of a win with uh, Kyle LaDuke out in uh, Chandler, Arizona, mm -hmm. which was awesome. Um, and so, yeah, lots of our guys are doing really well with that stuff. And uh, I can't say too much, but we got some cool stuff cooking up for, for next year and the next couple of years, too. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So what uh, like what sort of testing procedures and stuff do you guys get to do? Is that something that you're like you don't have to go into the specifics, but obviously you, oh, you know, don't you want guys my are, uh, data well, numbers you, or you anything. You can. <laughs> yeah. I just you know I figured I figured that you probably weren't at liberty to share any of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a scoop. No, um, no, we we do all kinds of testing. It's uh, that's another one that just kind of shocked me. You know, going in, there'll be various forms of lab testing mm -hmm. and real world testing. Because that stuff is is hugely important. You can't you can't keep stuff restricted behind glass and you know run the tires on these automated machines and say okay this is how we expect it to feel on the road or this is what the driver should expect. We do that to measure you know durability and tread life and this and that and and expectations of performance. But a lot of the stuff is tested in the real world in real world situations too. Lots of the performance tires you know they will have been tracked at some point before they reach the customer. And, uh, you know, that's how we put together our requirements. That's how we put together, you know, the data for what we re recommend for setup and everything. And it just never stops. I mean, last time I saw you was at a Speed Ventures event. Mm -hmm. And what was I doing out there? I was collecting data off of people that are using using our products. Mm -hmm. And it might be something like an R1R, an R888R that's been out for a while. But as people continue to use this stuff, you know, we want to keep studying it. We want to get as much data as possible and figure out every situation that everybody's going through to make sure that, you know, we've got the best thing available right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to tires and tire technology that a lot of people don't understand. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was at Continental, at least from like some of the street tire stuff that we did, you know, it'd be really interesting how certain suspension designs wouldn't wear a tire properly, mm -hmm. you know, like back then it was like E46 M3s. You throw something on the rear of those and like, a certain tire when I was a Continental just would not last. Like yeah. you couldn't make them last on the car. And then you throw a different, you know, tire on and it would be just fine. Yeah. Or like the Honda Odyssey, you would throw, you know, a certain tire on that and just the suspension design, just, it wouldn't work, yeah. you know, and then you throw another one of our tires on and it'd be fine. <laughs> so, you know, that at that point, 
it was back like when I was first getting into tracking and everything when I had that job. And it really it showed me that there was a lot behind it that like, you know, that sometimes as a manufacturer, you can't always control you do the best that you can. Yeah. Um, but there's some things that are just kind of, you know, the way the world is. Absolutely. The those are some comments I've gotten too in my time here. You know, I've gotten some complaints on like, hey, when are you guys going to make a tire that goes up against the Hoosier? Like this Hoosier A7 or R7 is like six seconds faster than the RR. And I'm like, are you sure about that? <laughs> and like, that sounds pretty biased. And then somebody else will say, oh, it's four seconds faster. And, and I'll admit they're competitive differences. But at the same time, it's a different tire. It's a different construction. It's a different technology. Just like anything else, if I was going to run a you know different spring rate on my car, I got to set up the rest of the car around mm -hmm. that. If you're going to run a different tire on this car, it's it's hard to compare apples to apples on any part that you interchange on the car. You can't expect always to be able to just swap one item in for another. Oh, it's slower. It must be a crappier product. It might be slower because you haven't built your setup around it yet, and that and that's a lot of what we have to uh, you know fine-tune with our recommendations to some of these guys yeah a lot of it comes around to suspension setup a lot of it comes around to uh tire pressures inflation pressures especially um it's a, a thing that lots of track day guys don't use and need to start using our pyrometers mm -hmm. <laughs> it's such an important element you can't do everything by fuel it has to be like the probe pyrometer exactly it can't just be like the you know the gun pyrometer yeah. where you're like you're looking at just the surface temp yeah data is your best friend and so i've heard so many horror stories it reminds me of my go-karting days where somebody wants to start racing a go-kart and they're like, okay, so what's the fastest thing that's out there? I'm like, well, 125 shifter is the fastest, but like, okay, you better not that's start That's what I'm with buying. Yeah. And then you're like, no, not a good idea. Yeah. If you want to have a bad time and go really slow and be passed up by slower guys, like slower carts, that's what's going to happen. And that's what happens a lot of times with people that are just getting started mm -hmm. in track days. What's the fastest car I can get? Okay, I'm going to get this, you know, what's the fastest car I can afford or something? All right, I'm going to get this M3. I'm going to throw this, you know, KW race suspension on it. I'm going to put slick tires on it. I'm going to tune my camber to negative four degrees because that's what all the guys on the forums told me I should do. I'm going to, you know, blow mm -hmm. the doors off this thing. And then, like I said, they're in for a bad time. Yeah. It's you got to use your tools first. And uh, the, the camber and the tire pressures are lots of the things that I witness being set up completely wrong for the driver. Right. You, you got to tune it for yourself. Now, when someone's using a tire parameter, I mean, what temperature do you usually recommend, you know, that people kind of shoot for, at least on like a street or like an R compound tire? Yeah. And then what variation, you know, is safe from like the inside shoulder to the outside shoulder? Yeah. Yeah. On, on, uh, it all depends on the tire. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you're looking more at race tires, you're looking at you know, a little closer to like 180 degrees, mm -hmm. 200. You might even get a little hotter than that. On street tires, you might shave, say, 20 degrees off of that. But the thing, the key is to make sure that you check it as soon as you get off the track. Right. Because tires cool off super right. fast. And, and preferably not even with like a cool down lap. Yeah, Just like exactly. come in, come in straight into hot pits. Yeah, and like... you run a hot lap up until you're getting to that pit exit or pit entrance from the track. Mm -hmm. Put up your hand, then slow down to a, a cool pace. Come to the pits, jump out of your car, take temps as fast as you can. And you measure the outside, the middle, and the inside. And you try and watch for that variance to see, you know, it tells you, are, are you running too much or too little toe? Are you running too high, too little tire pressures? Are you mm -hmm. running too much camber? And if, if you're looking at a variance of like, all right, the inside is 130 degrees, 
the middle is 150 and the outside's 180. Like, okay, Maybe I might a be little a little backwards here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what I see a lot is people running way too much negative. The, the outsides of their tires just aren't even being used half of the time. They're getting residual heat from the rest of the tire that's actually touching the ground. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the key, key thing really to just improve your tire wear, improve your, your, uh, lap times and just improve the overall driving feel of the car. I, I'm all for checking forums for, you know, a baseline to start on, but you can't always take those to heart because yeah, I just see way too aggressive setups out yeah. there. Well, I, I ran into that issue when I was running my S2000 for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, for a while, you know, everybody on the S2000 forum was like, oh, run Max Caster, run Max Caster. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'll run Max Caster. Turns out Max Caster on my S2000 with how low it was was like 7.9 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and in real tight corners, the thing would just push like mid corner, even off throttle. Yep. You turn in and the thing would just start pushing. Yeah. It's like, what the heck? <laughs> and I called, uh, I talked to my friend Aaron Lichty um, in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, and he was like, you know, like, have you thought about backing the caster off at all? And I was like, uh, not really. It's like, well, you got to remember, like, the caster affects your dynamic camber. The more you turn the wheel, the more camber you're going to have. Yeah. So I had me back it down to, like, 5.4, and it solved everything. It yeah. was still nice and stable in the fast corners, you know, where mm -hmm. you're not putting a lot of steering angle in. But then, you know, on the tight corners, when I would turn the wheel, you know, it wasn't rolling over on the outside because I <laughs> – or, you know, because I – I didn't have too much camber at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. and that, that fixed everything. Just like one little setup change. Like, yeah. That. Oh, I, I love that with, <laughs> with the, lots of the track day community. It's, it's like all or nothing with so many car setups. I'm going to get the thickest sway bar available and run it full stiff. Yeah. I'm going to get, you know, the stiffest suspension, the hardest suspension I'm going to get and just run it full hard. And it's like, there's, there's a point of diminishing returns. Like when it comes to car setup, it's all about balance. Yeah. You're, you're always giving up something to improve something else. You know, you want your car to be a neutral setup to start with, and then you just push it like crazy on track and you start finding the limits. Is it understeering? Is it oversteering? And you're always going to have to sacrifice. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm say oversteering a little bit into this turn. Okay. So maybe if I soften the sway bar a little bit, but that's going to make the car push a little bit in this section, mm -hmm. is that exchange worth it to me? Yeah. It's just, it's finding the, the greatest sum, I guess. Yeah. You know, like it's give and take everywhere. Yep. Um, but you know, you're looking for the best overall lap time. So you might lose a 10th of a second there, but if you can pick three tenths up, you know, from this other corner, yeah. then it's going to be worth it. Yeah. One of the greatest lessons I've ever seen and learned as a racer and in setting up my own cars is prioritizing the corners on any given yep. racetrack. I mean, what's, what's the most important corner on any track? It's the corner before the longest straight. Yep. And then you just go down the list from there. Second most important, second long, longest straight. And you set up your car and set up your driving for the best line and the best launch out of those specific corners. And that's that always means a compromise somewhere else. Yeah, there's going to be like one or two throwaway corners where mm -hmm. you're just like, oh, let's just freaking get through it. <laughs> like, yeah. it's not going to feel good. But yeah. You know, is um, we've had Oscar Jackson Jr. and Senior on the show before. Oh, nice! Um, and you know, They've I think got it was a nice Andy Miata. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was we had them on the show um, probably in 2016. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, 2015. Right after Junior had, had won, um, I think the T4 or STU something at Daytona. Okay. And you know, they were talking about how they had set the car up, and it was to be optimized to run the oval mm -hmm. at Daytona. 
And like it was kind of a little bit crap in the infield, yeah. but you know, they set it up for that because that's where they figured they could make up the most time and ended up working out. You know, and the car was like no corner matched on the car. Like, you know, front right <laughs> yeah, had yeah. like, you know, two degrees of camber, front left had like three or, or something. Yeah. Like every <laughs> you know, you put the thing on an alignment rack, you're like, oh, that's not a proper alignment. Yep. <laughs> but you know, it actually ended up working out. So Yeah. It's it's crazy some of the weird setups you see. And uh you know, we like when we race in the um Formula Mazda series, for example, like there are days where I'm grateful to be running in any spec class because that means I can't fine tune, you know, some set of 40 gear options that I have, you know, it's like, Oh, well, I'm redlining here. If we just swap out this one gear, we'll get a little bit extra on that turn. Like running a spec series pulls a lot of the, that setup yeah. guesswork out of the equation. And I'm so grateful for that in some instances. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what limiting choices can do. Yeah. You know, I think that's why people like in and out so much, right? Cause yes. like, there's only so many, so many options. Exactly. So they did add bacon lately. So oh, that's, that's that true. makes things complicated. But yeah, but bacon makes everything better. True. True. Very true. So if the answer, <laughs> if the question is, do you want to add bacon? The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a scary thing with the spec series. Cause lots of times you run it too restricted for a long time. As soon as somebody comes up with an idea, and sometimes an expensive idea, people jump onto it like, yes, let's do that. Yeah. And then they I know realize that's the afterwards, way it was, oh, it's expensive. I know that's the way it was in karting a lot. Yes. You know, that's that's one thing that's always frustrated me about karting mm-hmm. is that rules change a lot year to year and like motor packages can even change a lot year to year. Yeah. But the other thing is too, you know, with out here with Scusa, it's a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But like when I was looking at doing karting in the Southeast, like every track had different spec tires that you had to run yeah. and like, you know, they wouldn't allow this read and, you know, a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. And it just, it seems so compartmentalized that, you know, if you wanted to run in a full, like a region with multiple different, you know, organizations, you were looking at like five different sets of tires and like, it just, it started to get like way, way too complicated. Yeah. And, and what's strange with that, what what is strange with that is that anytime there's a major rule change like that, there's a group that breaks off and goes mm-hmm. club racing in some region on on like the weirdest oldest you know concepts but there there's always a group that's like you know what we're not going to do that we're going to take this setup and we're going to go club racing here and you know screw around on our own yeah but yeah i i do recall that it's it's kind of unfortunate in some cases it's almost like bop is starting to come in and take over and decide lots of the rules and you don't want to have to be thinking race to race like okay what's it going to be this time I, I think I was a little bit lucky when, when I raced in there. It was a little bit of a transitionary period, but pretty much when it came to shifter carts, you ran the same MG tires all year. Um, well, different, a new set every race, but we ran the same compound, the same design tire all year. And, uh, you know, it was either you run a 125 ICC or you run a spec Honda 125 like right. dirt bike engine. Right. Uh, a really cool thing that I've seen erupt out of that though is that that stock honda engine or i think they might be built now but they've got the spec honda formula yeah there's like a stock honda class now so isn't well yeah it's are they are those the five speeds or the six speeds you know what? i'm actually not sure i know that there's two depending on what year dirt bike they come the out yamahas of. may have been five and the okay. honda six or something backwards from that okay. but it's it's a class that has made a lot more financial sense iccs were fun especially because they were faster but in the long run being able to go to a dirt bike shop yeah. And get the parts you need instead of ordering something from Italy just helps out a lot. <laughs> What's that? So from karting, the one event that I know is really interesting every year, forget what it's called, 
but it's like it's a tag class, I think. And it's like a world championship where literally you fly in and the cart manufacturer and motor manufacturer provide the chassis and the motors and everything. And it's you and your team's job to essentially mate everything together, set it up and, you know, be as competitive as possible against other people in the same exact, you know, situation. I forget exactly what it's called. Is it in Brazil? I think so. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're still doing that. You or know not. what I'm talking about, though, yeah, right? I, yeah. I remember uh, Pro Karts. They, they actually gave the championship winner to some of the classes. Uh, like a trip that to go was down their there. grand prize yeah. was to take a trip down there and run that race it yeah. was a big deal and it, it really it seemed although i think the entry fees were expensive mm -hmm. you know it seems like the most pure way to test yourself as a driver and as a team is to yeah. show up without hardly any equipment maybe <laughs> yep. tools yep but no equipment and like literally when you check in at registration they're like all right here's your chassis here's your motor Here's your tires. <laughs> cool. We'll see you qualifying this evening. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like, Let's figure this thing out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like everybody else is spoiled because racing season's coming to a close now. And they're like, all right, there is no such thing as off season. Let's go back to the track and test and develop and tune up until our first race in March or April. Yeah. But yeah, with that, it's like, okay, you've got an hour <laughs> to, yeah. to figure this thing out. I mean, can you imagine for like, for like the global MX five cup series, like you show up to the track and they're like, all right, there's your chassis. <laughs> yeah. Your coilovers are in that box. Yeah. Uh, your brakes are over there and your motors in that crate. Here you go. We'll see you on Monday. Oh, I, I love that <laughs> style too. I remember seeing some uh, top gear episodes in the past where they go to, you know, it's uh, the racing community in every European country just seems so much better than ours in some ways. But I think in, in Finland, if I remember right, there is some series similar to like Lemons and Chump Car here where everybody's racing dirt cheap cars. And at the end of every weekend, you could say, hey, I want to trade my car for your car. And everybody could do that for each other. And it's like if if you've got a crappy car, you've got to be willing to, uh, you know, maybe see that car again. Or if you're trying to trade... You know, if you're trying to build up a nice setup, you got to be willing to give that away to somebody else that might outdo you with the next one. And so it's a cool way of, you know, kind of playing head games with people, but also yeah. leveling the playing field and that kind of thing. It just sounds like a blast, you know, yeah. probably an engineer's dream for some people like, ooh, a new challenge. I get to figure out the suspension setup. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, especially for karting where so much of it is, you know, is setup based, mm -hmm. you know, because that's really... That's all you can really tune yes. on a card is like is the setup. And it's not even like shock settings and stuff like that because you don't have any of that. Yeah. You know, it's all it's like it's camber and caster and like adjusting Ackerman and like, you know, maybe tuning rear axle, mm -hmm. um, you know. But other than that, there's really not as much that you can do. It's 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 really weird with with cars and open wheel cars. I mean, you have arrow, you've got suspension and everything. And then, of course, alignment settings and anti-roll bars and all that but it's a uh, it was almost a, a relief moving from go-karts to formula mazda in that sense because what can we change on the formula mazda we have two-way adjustable shocks front wing which you always just leave dialed full mm -hmm. and then the rear wing which you might fine-tune a couple degrees the front bar is full soft all the time and then the rear bar you know you move around half an inch at a time and then alignment like everybody runs nearly the same alignment and yeah. the same gear stack in in carts, I cannot believe like how much how much work you gotta do to fine tune that thing per track too. Mm -hmm. 
because you can change gear ratios on it. Oh yeah, really easily. Yeah, and, and you like have both to. gear ratios, <laughs> you can change like the front sprocket, the rear sprocket. Yep. You can change the clutch. You can change like yep. lots of different and, stuff. And you have to. It sucked because like every track was different. So it was like, oh, okay, we got to split the gears again, throw them on the axle. You can change the the axle, which might be a weird concept to a lot of people. These things run a solid axle that runs through the bearings that you got to hammer out, mm-hmm. slide out the side, and swap in a new one because you can actually run different stiffness axles yeah, like different wall thicknesses or different yep. radiuses and even uh you know back when i was racing i don't know if it's a popular thing now but back when i was racing the carts even different hardness wheels which really is, yeah which is so strange yeah uh front bar rear bar you've got these you know weird bars that you can bolt in like along the side rails of the thing mm-hmm. and then uh adjusting the carburetors absolute pain those those icc carts they're so fast, but they're so picky about the power band. You had to bring a whole weather station every track you go to <laughs> to figure out what jets you're going to run in that thing. And, uh, yeah, like to move to move out of that Formula Mazda where you can show up track to track and be like, uh, maybe we'll add a degree of wing and yeah, we'll leave the rear bar <laughs> and then just go racing. Yeah. No headache whatsoever. It was nice. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that in any spec series, you know, I think that's mm-hmm. what attracts a lot of people. You yeah. know, there are there are some people like engineers that really like the tinkering and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of people, they just want to focus on, you know, just driving, making basic setup changes. Yeah. But to where, you know, the driver is still the largest variable. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's really why, like some of the Mazda Road to Indy series and the uh, Mazda Road to 24 series has bred some of the fastest drivers out there too because lots of these guys are especially in uh in spec miata and mx5 cup lots of the drivers in these classes they're working with some serious limitations that are so driver focused and i mean have you seen an mx5 cup or spec miata race in person yeah like if you want to see a 60 car field where the top 30 are all Within one a second, second of each yeah, other <laughs> qualifying. You're like, what the heck? Yeah. yeah. It's like IndyCar racing and F1 and stuff. I, I love watching those. They're fun. But like, if you want to watch a seriously intense race, I mean, you got to go to the grassroots level and see what these kids are doing. It's, it's nuts. Can you, can you imagine an F1 race with 60 cars on track? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be nuts. That, that sounds like the most <laughs> expensive so event to ever take place in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be completely crazy. Oh, that reminds me too. Speaking of formula car stuff, mm-hmm. do you know anything about that series that's starting up in Europe? And I think they just did a test in Austin. It's a full carbon fiber like formula car, but it has the Aprilia RSV4 like motorcycle motor in it. There, I I can't say I'm familiar with this one, but right now is a weird time with all these different formula car classes coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now. I mean, you've got the new F2000 and Pro Mazda chassis that just came out. But at the same time, um, you know, we've got the Formula 4 that just debuted. And now we have, let's see, there's the, what was it? F1000, I guess, is a couple of years old in SECA. But then NASA, Andy Land came out with the NASA NP01, mm-hmm. which is a cool car. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not seen all these different cars in series kind of coming up at the same time. So I'll admit this, this one I'm not as familiar with. It sounds a little bit like the F 1000 class. It might, that might be what it is. It started over in Europe. Okay. And then, you know, and I think the cars are actually, they're not all that expensive for what they are. It's like Mm. full carbon fiber monocoque. I just love the V four motor because it sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean the the F one thousands here. I mean they're they're running the uh, Gixxer motors, and okay. those things are wild. I mean, they're pushing some around two hundred horsepower, but the car only weighs a thousand pounds, and yeah. you've got downforce and slick tires. Those things run insane lap times around lots of these tracks. And yeah, if if I had the money, they are a little more expensive than the Formula Mazda. But if I had money and I was just out there to do it for kicks, like those things would be so much fun to drive. Yeah, yeah. What was uh, what was the last thing that you got to drive on track? Uh, the last thing I tracked was probably probably a test I did for D Sport. They were doing a force induction challenge for uh, the eighty six platform. Mm-hmm. They did this out at Streets of Willow. They had uh, six or seven cars out there, and so they They're had, all like shop cars, like from like Counter Space Garage and places yeah, like that. But, yeah, but it was cool because they were all running pretty much the same equipment everywhere except for whatever force induction platform, supercharger huh. or turbo. Mm-hmm. So you have like Edelbrock supercharger. You've got, um, what else was there? Somebody had a crazy full race turbo on their car. That thing was pushing like 400 horsepower. Oh, wow. uh, HKS had an appearance out there. And so there, there's all this variety of stuff to drive. And it was just, it was strange because I was tracking all these cars. I would do like two or three hot laps. It's like the same, but different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right, Cameron, you did that one. Like jump out of that and jump into this, jump out of that and jump into this. But it's cool to get the comparisons between the two because I've always been partial to uh, supercharged cars mm-hmm. versus turbo. And it's it's such a tough argument because, you know, the the power it takes to power Isn't a supercharger. Isn't there a turbo car on the driveway, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've got a different story for why I picked that car. <laughs> but it's it's really cool. Every supercharger is so different mm-hmm. from the other. And same goes for these turbo kits. They all have their different characteristics. And it's not even just, you know, big turbo is going to take forever to spool. Small turbo is going to spool earlier. It's it's not so cut and dry as that because a lot of it is down into how these guys, how these shops tune and set them up. Um, I was I was so surprised at some of these, how, how balanced they were. There were some where I was like, this car wants to kill me, but it is just so much fun on yeah. the racetrack. Whereas somebody can do a high horsepower turbo build and tune and it can drive as if it was naturally aspirated. Like if you threw somebody else in it, they wouldn't know the difference. Right. And so that, that kind of stuff is, is really hard for lots of the buyers. So a lot of like tuning, like you had like a lot of attention to like boost by gear and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like it's not just throttle position. It's yeah. Boost by gear is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that's kind of nice about turbos. I I guess you can do it with superchargers too. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like you have just a little bit more control with the turbo to do boost by gear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, speaking of the WRX, if you don't mind me, like derailing this completely. Yeah, go for it, man. (laughs) The, the WRX, I, I've never, so like I said, I've liked supercharged cars, but I think my, my dad and grandfather like instilled this fear upon me. Don't get a force induction car because it's going to break down on you. You know, that's, (laughs) that's always been the fear. Well, that's, that's like the seventies and eighties, like force induction mentality yeah exactly they'll they'll say oh yeah that that car that engine it should last about two hundred thousand miles but if you throw a blower on it cut that in half (laughs) you know and so i was just afraid of it for the longest time so when i moved down here to orange county i uh my daily driver was an 85 corvette which i still have and i love the thing but it's not the most reliable car so i was thinking you don't say yeah (laughs) (laughs) strangely enough it was a transmission that had come out four or five times the engine only once yeah wow (laughs) But so I was like, okay, I need a backup car if I'm if I'm going to be here. I need something economical. I need something practical. Like I can't get away forever with a two seater V8. 
And so what I ended up getting was a Datsun 510, a 71 510. Two door? Two door. Nice. The thing was beautiful at night, which was when I looked at it, which was also when I bought it, which was (laughs) a big mistake because when I saw that car the next morning, it's like, oh. Look at that. There's a rust hole in the passenger side. I've got side some floor. friends that can tell stories from college that are like that. Yep, you know, yep. like you make the purchase at night and you wake <laughs> yep. up the next morning, you're like, nope. Less than <laughs> what learned. was I thinking? Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. Bondo cracks here. Oh, it's a clean title, but it looks like the trunk's been crushed in before. <laughs> <laughs> Did it have a motor swap or anything? Or? Uh, no, it was running the L16 okay. in that. So yeah, man. The, the car was Dual fun. Dual carb setup still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The car was fun, but I was like, I'm, I don't have the time or the patience or the money to invest in this thing. So I got a, got rid of that. I was like, hey, what other practical four-cylinder fun car can I find? I ended up getting a Saab 92X Aero, a, a Sabaru. Sabaru, yeah. yeah. So um, this might be a lesser-known one, so just so people know. it's Take a 2005 Subaru WRX. Wagon. Wagon, yep. yep. Pull the front and rear bumpers off. Throw on a Saab-style and some Saab badges, give it a leather interior, and you've got a Saab 92X Aero. Yep. <laughs> and everything else is branded Subaru on Subaru, that car. Right, yeah. So that car was fun uh, until I overheated it a few too many times and blew head gaskets and <laughs> warped ahead. And I was just... That's yeah. when you STI swap it, man. Right? So the owner, the new owner of that car did that like oh, days really? after I sold it to him. <laughs> so yeah, after that car, I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm not responsible enough to own this car or maybe it's curse. I don't know what, but I got to get rid of this thing. So... Somewhere around that time when I was just sick and tired of, you know, cycling through these cars, I got a cool gig with D-Sport where I got to uh, test out Dirtfish's three-day rally oh, yeah. car program yeah. uh, up in Washington. That facility is pretty cool. One of the coolest experiences of my life. Uh, that class is run so tight. You didn't happen to go in the barn, did you? Where, oh, like, yeah. there were a yeah. bunch of 190E Cosworths? All yes. lined up? Yeah. yeah. There's like, like 12 what the heck is that doing in there. there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry for the sidetrack. No, but. it's cool. That, that place, well, did you know that the uh, the tower there was in the uh, introduction of Twin Peaks? Yeah. 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 So apparently they have some serious problem with Twin Peak fans, like coming trying in and trying to get and photos and everything late at night. Yeah. But so yeah, I, I did that program, which was just an absolute blast. I can't say enough good things about it. It was so much fun. It was such a wake up call to me to how poor I am at car control. I was like, I can drive formula cars because they do everything you want to. But what about when a car starts sliding and yeah. you try to get it sideways? I had to fight so many habits. All wheel drive is so weird under that condition too. It's like, yeah. It's almost like the easy button. Yeah, but it really is. It's really weird, like pitching a car sideways and holding the steering wheel straight. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. You're like, That's the technique. And yeah. I'm just like, I'm, I'm trying to not do anything in order to get this car to go fast. Like, that just doesn't feel right. I should be working harder at this. Yeah. And, and so anyways, after after we finished that program, we came out of it uh, saying, OK, we got to try out some rally stuff. So I hit up a buddy of mine uh, that I used to race Formula Mazda with, Todd McAllister. And uh, he told me, you know, he just did the dirt fish program. He uh, got into rally racing. He was like all into it. And so uh, he was working with uh, this guy, uh, Brent, over at Rally Candy, kind of out here in in, uh, Southern California. Mm -hmm. They were putting together this rally car uh, with us at D-Sport kind of as this joint project. And we're saying, okay, we're going to go do the uh, Oregon Trail rally and I'm going to get to run passenger seat and co-drive for this thing. Nice. Yeah. I, I wanted to drive, but you know what? <laughs> first first experience doing stage rally, uh, I'd rather somebody with some experience do it before <laughs> I do it. 
So we got to do three days of that up by uh, up by Portland. Um, me rolling passenger, trying not to get sick, calling out notes. I couldn't believe you know how well we did. But what was crazy was just how we took this car. It was in the super production class, I think it was, on a 15 WRX. So all we did to this car was caged it, threw in safety equipment, swapped in STI brakes, rally wheels and tires, uh, and Do you exhaust. Any suspension stuff, or is it stock uh, suspension? Yeah, we ran fuel rally okay. suspension, okay, and a turbo restrictor because even though we we're going up against STIs, every car has to run a turbo restrictor in hmm. that class, which is kind of strange. Um, so, so like how they do BOP essentially is like, I, I guess so, or is it the even same though it's not very balanced, for like all same restrictor. Really? It was, yeah. It's like we're being handicapped against the STIs. Like there's no way around that, <laughs> but you know, whatever. Well, they say that, you know, it's minor power difference. It all comes to driving anyways, which in rally, you know, I guess you got a point there because there's so many variables that are thrown at you. So we're like, whatever, let's go for it. Let's do it in this class. So cars running. You know, stock engine for the most part. I mean, all that is is an exhaust, uh, stock suspension components aside from the coilovers, and just run it as is. So we did around 300 stage miles on that thing over the course of three days, just pounding the crap out of this car. You know, beating it. Uh, there were jumps all over the place, ruts in the road, and. We never had to jump out to change a tire or a wheel or anything. Nice. Like, at the end of each day, it's like, you know, regular maintenance. Bleed brakes, check the pads, check this, fuel it up for the next day, do whatever. The the only time that we noticed any damage was just at the very, very end, because that last stage was brutal. So much gravel, so many rocks, you know, coming up and hitting the thing. Like, it sounded like people were just, you know, throwing buckets of nuts and bolts <laughs> against the bottom <laughs> of the car in that last stage. It was rough. And we had this... Big old jump at the end of it. I'm I'm sure it was the grand finale that they were saving. Like, you know, if that didn't break your car, this will. <laughs> it seemed to be designed <laughs> that way. But muscled it to the finish. Car still drove on its own and everything. We look underneath and there are rock chips all over the place. And one of the suspension arms on one of the right uh, like rear corners. Not torn. It was just a little tweaked. Ah. And that was it. It's not that bad. Yeah. So after after all of that, I thought... Okay. Yeah, because those are like stamped steel control arms on yeah. that thing, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not like, they're not the most robust. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so if, if I just take a car and throw coilovers on it, cage it, and throw some rally wheels and tires and suspension, and the rest of it can last that kind of a beating, like, that's not a bad platform. So not long after, like, I think it was a matter of months, I went into a super dealership and got the WRX that's in my driveway now. Nice. <laughs> so long story, that's why I ended so up with that car. So what's the next step? Some some Toyo tarmac tires or, like, <laughs> gravel tires on the thing? I'm I'm trying so hard to keep the WRX, like, my tame daily. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's one of those things, you know, it's an endless spiral. As soon as I start throwing stuff at it, like, I at least have to wait until the warranty is gone. The Corvette, on the other hand, now that's my secondary car, the one I get to play with. So we should just have that like a rear-wheel drive rally car, man. Yeah, I could. I you could. could totally do that. I, I just saw recently that there are some uh, NA Miatas that some won some SCCA rallycross races oh, really? too. Yeah. So I mean, that do that kind of got me thinking. So do you think do you think that's the next step? Do you want to go like either rally like rally crossing <laughs> or like you know start doing some amateur rally stuff? Well, if I had the money. 
rally would probably be the absolute way I would go. It would be between rally or IMSA prototype racing. I mean, you guys could shrink down those <laughs> desert racing tires into like a 15-inch rim, and, you know, it could be a business expense for oh, Toyo. Oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, have you, have you seen the uh, America's Rallycross series yeah. that's, that's been coming out this year? Yeah. I mean, that stuff looks like, looks like a ton of fun. So it, it's all a money game. But I'll tell you, I've got some plans in the works. I wish I could tell you what they were, though. <laughs> That's all right. So we'll maybe we'll have to circle back in a couple months here. But but you might see me in a new new racing ride in a couple months. Cross be, your fingers for me. <laughs> that'd be pretty awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. So well, cool. Well, where can people find out more about you and you know, kind of follow along on any of your racing pursuits and stuff like that? Yeah, on uh, social media channels like Facebook and Instagram, you can look me up. My stuff is uh, Cam Parsons eight eight. And if you want to look up the race team stuff, it's Parsons Racing. Or if you want to check everything else out online, the website is www.parsonsracing.com. Cool. Well, we really appreciate your time this evening. And uh, maybe we'll see you on the floor at SEMA next week. All right. Yeah, I'll see you there. Hopefully I'll be awake through it all. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Cameron. All right. Thank you.